Hi, I'm Jesse. Welcome to Red Cloaks Radio, where we are counting down to see if the Massachusetts legislature will or will not move forward and pass the Roe Act before the end of this legislative session. We are very excited to have State Representative Michelle Scola with us today and my wonderful co-hosts. I'm Lisa Bacci from Minuteman Indivisible here in Lexington. And I'm Martha from Boston Red Cloaks. And with us today is our exciting guest, State Representative Michelle Scolo. Thank you for having me. I'm pleased to be here. So we know that COVID has added to everyone's plate. What is the atmosphere like at the State House now as we get closer to the end of the legislative session? We just heard that safe communities is moved out of the Public Safety Committee and police reform has moved forward. What would be your sense of it, Michelle? Thanks for the excellent question. Uh, I am a brand new uh, legislator. This is my first session. And so this will be the first time I've experienced the end of a two-year session. Normally, the legislature breaks July 31st uh, before an election year. And so we go into recess. Uh, but, but it is certainly not a normal year. And many of us are hoping that we will actually continue beyond July 31st or come back after the primary to continue to do business because there are so many critical things on our plate. So the atmosphere is you know, one of, uh, of anxiety and tension. We are still, because of COVID, very much um, struggling with trying to figure out how the budget will move forward with not enough information to determine what a budget should look like. And there's so many important pieces of legislation that we had to set aside while we were doing emergency legislation to deal with the pandemic. So uh, by now, we had, we, many of us had hoped that these key pieces of legislation would have been passed already. And uh, certainly with the Black Lives Matter movement, that has elevated the, the need to address police reform on, on a critical timeline. And I'm, I'm glad that that is in the spotlight right now, but it has sort of pushed aside other pieces of legislation that might have gone normally through the process. So it's a very, very busy time. Constituents are contacting me constantly, which is wonderful, but my email box is full, my phone call list is full, and uh, it's kind of never ending right now. So Michelle, given all of those sort of things that are happening all at once, what do you see as the prospects for the Roe Act to come out of committee and, and be acted on this session? You know, I don't have a great feel for uh, whether it's likely to move forward or not. Certainly at the beginning of the session, I would have predicted this is one of the pieces of legislation we would have done because there's great interest in it and it's really an important critical piece of legislation. Um, about halfway through the session, we got a very strong sense that Chairman Cronin was being asked to move the bill forward. And um, I've, I had some good conversations with her and really felt coming out of those conversations that she was preparing the bill to advance. Um, but of course, when COVID started, that really derailed the, that focus and those efforts. So I wish I could give you a clear picture about whether or not it's likely to be able to be uh, taken up this session, but I think it also matters whether or not uh, we'll end up coming back, you know, after the primary or after the general election to conduct business. We noticed that the Black Lives Matter effort has helped move some things up. Police reform is a big one. The Roe Act also draws on some of the injustice that is currently happening in the state. So we know, for example, that when people can't afford access to reproductive health care, including abortion, often that falls on people who are economically disadvantaged. Often there's a correlation with people who are black or brown. 
And so that aspect in terms of accessibility economically is, is one part of the ROE Act. And the other part is definitely with judicial bypass, where mm -hmm. um, teens who are pregnant and are not able to get consent from their parents are now required to go to the courts. And as we think about the you know, school to prison pipeline, and we think about telling teens, you found yourself pregnant, and now you have to go to court in order to move forward with your life, feels like those things are tied in. Do you think that legislators can see from what you've talked to with your colleagues, can they see these implications for passing row and helping with racial justice? I think so, uh, very much so. The, the lens has shifted in a really uh, positive way. Uh, and I would say there's also a, a tremendous focus on what the needs of the immigrant community are as well. And I, I think there's um, you know, strong concern about the fact that you know, we're seeing, for that reason, we're seeing safe communities uh, moving. We're hoping we're seeing some movement on that piece of legislation. And I think, you know, just as you said, we are, we are the average citizen and certainly certainly the rank and file legislator is, is focused on the fact that um, immigrants are uncomfortable anywhere near the court system. And so the judicial bypass piece of the Roe Act really can be reframed as an issue that really um, affects black and brown residents and needs to be addressed. And I think for the advocates, that's a strong argument that you should be elevating. Um, maybe that was not as front and center in the arguments that we were making early on in the development of this legislation. And now I think it, it really can be a focus. When you're at the state house, I'm imagining that you can talk to each other freely if you're walking down the hall or there's different ways to impact the thinking of your colleagues. And what is it like now that things are so virtual? In some ways, we've grown um, tighter and our communications has, have really improved. To give you an example, we have a daily progressive caucus call and it is one of the best. We get a briefing, we have a, a speaker uh, from, you know, if we need some clarification, come in and talk to us. A member with a key piece of legislation will walk us through something and we're all on it along with staff. So there's usually 60 to 100 people on the call every day, sometimes more. Um, on the Progressive Caucus call, which is really incredible. So the strength of Progressive Caucus has, has really grown. Vice Chair Garlic comes and speaks to us every Friday to just check in with us and see what's going on. So that line of communication has really improved. Uh, on the other hand, the, the casual conversations with legislators who maybe we aren't as close to don't happen. Bumping into someone in the hall, turning around and seeing someone who sits near you that you might happen to chat with. Sometimes someone who sits in the other, you know, side of the, the hall is talking to this, needs to see the same chairperson you've gone to see and you find yourself standing in a cluster of people and you, you learn a little bit about a, another colleague you maybe have never had a conversation with. Remember, there are 160 of us, right? So, so uh, it's hard to get to know all of our fellow colleagues, and um, it is a real disappointment for me as a, as a first-term legislator that I feel like I've lost an entire year of, of developing those relationships. So we have to be a little bit more deliberate about picking up the phone and calling the chairperson if we need to talk to them or checking in with someone on their legislation. And that's often harder to do. Um, I don't have everybody's cell phone numbers yet, and they're not in their offices. So I'm, you know, it's track them down through the, through my staff to their staff to see if you can get their cell phone. And, you know, so, so doing business that way is tricky. Um, but the Zoom calls really do make it possible for our colleagues in Western Mass, for instance, to participate actively and more equally, which is really leveling the playing field for them. It's been wonderful. You know, so it's a mixed bag of, of improvements in communication and some, you know, difficulty in communication. 
I think as Red Cloaks and as organizers with Indivisible and our different community advocates, we've, we've had a similar experience where there's, there's some bright spots because Zoom does let people across the state connect in a very different way, but we do lose the ability as constituents to come into the state house the way we would have done that. So it's, it does present some, a range of responses. What are ways that you would most like to hear from constituents? You know, such a good question again, because I, I don't want to miss people's uh, emails, but that's the primary way of getting in touch with me right now. Uh, I do have a Google Voice number and I have an autoresponder on my email now that says, if this is an urgent matter that needs a response, please also send an email to my aide. So we're both trying to watch my inbox because quite frankly, one of the things that I think is a little bit broken in our system is the, um, the auto-generated emails. You know, what happens is organizations will send out a contact your legislator, here's the form, and I'll get, you know, 50 form letters, all from constituents. And while I'd love to be able to respond to them all personally, it's very tricky to get everybody an individualized, customized response, right? So um, I need to know, for instance, when someone has a constituent service need, they're having a problem with, uh, you know, just today someone was reaching out about the registry of motor vehicles, whether they're having a problem with their unemployment insurance claim. I need to know about those immediately so I can intercede and help them. So I do tell people to email both me and my aide, but to the extent that constituents can send something um, more personal, uh, more, more, um, the form letters are, you know, I, I glance through them, but I read the ones that someone's typed themselves, because even if it's only a paragraph, that sometimes can be more effective than the form letter. And in fact, it's interesting, even the form letters themselves even come in with a certain look to them. You can tell the font is a certain way, they're gray, you know, so you know, oh, you're getting form letters, and you just kind of go, uh, you know, okay, I, I can't, I can't respond to all of these. I'll read the form letter once, but I'm not going to read 50 of the same letter, right? So your message gets through a little bit more clearly if you type a personal note. And um, my Google Voice number really is a good and effective way to reach me because that gets forwarded as a text message as well. So I get it on my phone and I get it in a couple of places. And so um, when things are coming in quickly, the Google Voice is more effective than, than a direct text because I get both an email and a text message and a voicemail. So I get them all, and that's, that's a really good way to try to reach me. I have a question going back to the Roe Act. So you said that it's kind of stalled. Did I understand correctly? I don't know if it's stalled. I, I just don't know what the prospects of getting it through the session are. Um, I think there was every intention of getting... Okay, and what is your uh, your feeling about it? What, how, or why would you be happy that this would pass? Well, I, I support the entire bill and want to see the whole bill pass the way it's written right now. I'm very strongly in support of the ROAC. But to to just describe a little bit about some of the conversations I've had with Chair Cronin, she, we were asked or we were invited to make an appointment with her and talk to her about our position on the bill. Um, and all of the legislators that had signed on as co-sponsors were urged to go in and, and meet with her. And when I did, I brought my um, Row Act postcards, which by the way, is another great way to get in touch with me. The postcards are tangible and I find them very effective. When, when I get something physical, um, it's easier for me to uh, see how important this issue is to people. 
So when I went in and spoke with her, um, first of all, she was surprised I was getting postcards. She didn't know that the postcards um, were coming into her office because her staff was reading them and putting them in a pile and she had never seen them. So she was really taken aback. Wow, you're getting postcards. Uh, but she was also polling members about whether we supported all of the provisions in the ROE Act and whether or not there were some that we would like to see removed. Um, and she was asking very strategic questions because the input she was getting was that some, some members liked some pieces of the legislation, but not other pieces. So she was trying to come to a sense of consensus about what could be moved that all, all that the, the majority of members would vote in support of, because obviously we don't know, you know, if it'd be vetoed by the governor, we'd need to have a veto-proof majority whenever you have a, a, you know, a Republican governor and a Democratic legislature. You have to know that you have, you have to count your votes very strategically. So that's why I say I don't know, you know, whether the bill will come out in the same form or whether it will come out um, with modifications or whether they'll hold it entirely simply because of the workload right now. We didn't expect to have to do so many COVID-related bills. We didn't expect we didn't anticipate having to bring a whole new type of um, police reform bill forward. Uh, you know, certainly there were uh, bills in public safety that public safety wanted to prioritize, but we are seeing a lot of new legislation emerging and having to be vetted very quickly um, on a short timeline. And we have to completely redo the budget. So, so my, my comments about the likelihood of it getting out of session are tempered by reality that you know we'd like to get it out this session but it's it's quite possible we'll simply run out of time it's so funny you say that um, it's not actually funny but it's uh poetic because i think that is how um people who are pregnant feel right now like they run out of time so i'm i, I know you're a full supporter but i think the hard part, having listened in the hearing to everyone who spoke last June, was thinking about the individual pregnant people who, if they cannot access medical abortion early, their time runs up and then they end up having to have these physical procedures. Or, you know, for the teens who are afraid to go in front of a judge, they can't miss school, they don't have any time for that to go in, then they sometimes self-medicate and that can be disastrous. Or you know, these poor people who find out later in pregnancy and then they have to leave the state because their time has also run out to um, have it be legal here. So I know we're really hoping that members of the Judiciary Committee still remember that testimony from way back a year ago. We know you do. And we're hoping that they, that they, they can hold that in their hearts and that they can pull it forward right. so that another year's, well, two years worth of people don't have to suffer. You know, what, running out of time reminds me also that our young people who find they need to access abortion right now also can't get into the courts. Courts have been closed and they are also triaging the cases that they're taking. And if it were um, to be assigned to a decision between they and their doctor, then telemedicine could take over and the doctor could work with the young person and they would not be running out of time trying to get the permissions they need. So I think that's another angle to argue uh, why we need this now, because it may be another you know year before COVID is completely or longer through the system. And I, as I understand it, uh, pregnancies have not gone down even in COVID times. Young people are finding a way to Yes, I, I have a question about the, the judges and the judicial system. So what I've been hearing is that 
all the time the judges ask if the person that is pregnant is mature enough to have an abortion. But can we make them change this, the, their mindset to ask the person, are you mature enough to be a mother, a parent to this child? Because I would think that is the most important thing. It's the, this child is coming and it's gonna be with you for the rest of his life. So are you able to provide, are you not only economically, but also spiritually and make, make this person be, become somebody productive in this society? You raise a good point. Um, you know, these are the complex issues around this that make no sense to those of us who advocate that it should be a decision between a, a woman and her doctor. What an individual judge focuses on and how he or she makes his mind up about a, uh, granting the, the permission to the, to the minor who's approached them is not something that I think we can legislate. But I think that's all the more reason why it shouldn't be so subjective. It should simply be a, a medical decision. And I think that the value judgments we, we place on people, young people who are underage seeking abortion is you know, totally inappropriate. When I think about the cases of rape and incest and having to further shame and embarrass a young person by having to go into the courts to explain in a somewhat public setting why they want an abortion is just appalling to me that you would put a, a young person through that. So, you know, I, I don't know how, what more we can say about that, but it's true that there are so many complicated factors in the decision-making process. And really our focus should be on supporting young women through very difficult times in their lives. Yeah, well said. And I think the fact that, as you point out, a good number of the people who become pregnant underage as minors has either had abuse in their experience and they are traumatized. So when they go to a doctor, doctors are really trained to have the skills to recognize and respond and refer the resources that that person would need for all kinds of reasons. Excellent point. It's a very sobering topic. And one thing that's come up in some of our other interviews is that there's a gender imbalance in the state house. It's not quite 50-50 like society. We've heard from someone that there are more people named Mike than there are women. <laughs> so we, I haven't counted. We need to have a Mike guest on soon to confirm that. We've asked in other settings whether it seems like legislators understand reproductive processes or human anatomy or how abortion works or how pregnancy works and medication abortions versus physical procedures. So that may be an area to work on as well. I love that you said that in your progressive caucus, you're having different kinds of meetings and education and working with each other. Maybe there's some future Zoom for legislators to get a 101 on reproductive processes. It would be wonderful if we could do that. No question about it. And, you know, we have made a little bit of progress. The two special elections, there were three recently, but two of the three special elections to fill vacant seats were filled by females. So a little bit of forward progress. Good to see, you know, females replacing seats that had been held by males. I think that's one step in the right direction. And I'm just going to circle back on a comment you made about um, medical doctors being trained to recognize abuse. 
They're also mandatory reporters and judges are not, which is one of the reasons I am so steadfast in support of the, um, the judicial bypass provisions. A doctor is required to report to, you know, the official agencies, whichever, in, in some cases you may have, you know, a child in foster care, you know, being abused. There's all kinds of things and they need to report that as a doctor and they are trained to recognize it as you pointed out. Whereas judges are not trained to recognize it and are not mandatory reporters. So another very good reason why we need that. No, it's great. We, as in Red Club guys, we have bumped into some legislators and had some very interesting conversations. And for some of them, we've learned that so far the pattern I'd say has been men in their 60s-ish who have this feeling of, oh, if it's a teenager, they're pregnant, I want them to come to me. And they don't quite get the connection that what they're saying is, if you don't come to me, then I kind of want you punished. I kind of want you sent to court where you will be shamed. They don't even hear it. Sometimes Martha gets through to them. But they have to process what does it mean if they don't come to you that now you want them to go to court instead of a doctor. And so educational conversations were helpful, I think, for some of them to break through. Oh, I get what you're saying. Right. Actually, if they didn't go to me, because for whatever, they just wouldn't, then if they went to a doctor, they're still getting advice. They're not all alone, but there was someone who may spend more time with them even. So we're definitely going to want to be able to tap back into your experience when we think about upcoming elections. So we're hoping ROAC gets passed by the end of the session, and then we would like to take a closer look at just what you brought up because we are fascinated with the statewide progress. And you're in such a good position for us to follow because you are seeing it with fresh eyes and you've got a vision. We've heard that people who come from select boards and school committees often have a much, are much more familiar with being open, transparent, and timely because you're used to a one-year annual budget. Do you have any closing thoughts you want to share with us about that budget or any other priorities? The budget. Um, that's a tough one. We are, you know, in Progressive Caucus urging uh, the need to bring in more progressive revenues um, and not to cut the budget because an austerity budget would be really hard on low moderate income people the most and, and damage the safety net the most, damage schools, damage the things that we need to be investing in when the economy is on shaky legs. So I, as we understand, we're, we're, we've done you know, a, a one month budget so far. I think we're going to continue doing that for a, a few more months. Uh, and then we'll probably recraft the budget somewhere around the end of the year. So I do think that the normal budget process, we know it's been upended. And I, th I do think we'll be digging into it in the fall when we're starting to see, you know, today is tax day. And this, because all of the taxes uh, were deferred, um, property taxes and uh, federal taxes, you know, state, all taxes were um, put off until today. And so we don't have a clear picture of how bad the revenue collections really are. We don't know, maybe they're not gonna be as bad as we think, and maybe the, the revenue won't be as far off. So we won't know for a while what the budget picture is going to look like. Uh, so I would say stay tuned, but I do think uh, we're gonna to need to push for the fair share amendment, uh, absolutely. And I'm continuing to push for other uh, creative new revenues. Even uh, the expansion of the bottle bill, for instance, can bring in several hundred million dollars, which is real money. And and helps the environment and helps municipalities takes the cost off the, of their um, accounts. So it'll certainly be an interesting fall and I think there's no precedent for this. So 
Stay tuned. Thank you so much for spending time with us today. We really appreciate it. I'm happy to come on your show again. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate your time as well. Thanks for inviting me as a guest. Take care. Thank Thank you. you.